Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. We're in a series of which uh, is six parts that we did the first three parts in a certain fashion, and this next three is a little different. I know that doesn't even inform you a whole lot, but um, today we're talking, talking about a song of hope in the midst of waiting. And one question I guess I'd ask for you right now, how many of you have ever, um, have ever had the, the unique and joyous experience of going to the uh, DMV and, and, and sitting there and, and waiting for a period of time? Have you ever gone to that? If you haven't, you're not a driver. I don't know how you'd get away with not doing that. And so I was there recently for something, and it struck me two things. One is it's such a cross-section of humanity. Everybody, rich, poor, doesn't matter your background, everyone eventually has to pass through those doors, sit in that place. And I, I, I fortunately just had to go in and have some information and go out again, but I stood there for a minute as I exited, and I'm seeing probably eight, maybe 80 to 100 people just sitting there, and others standing around the edges, and the people that were up front serving them, and then you see this scrolling list of numbers with your phone or your ID of some type that would give you some sense. And I thought of several things. One, there is nothing more democratic and egalitarian than the DMV. And two, is that this is my personal snapshot of hell. <laughs> we just sit there waiting forever. Um, I don't know what your, your, your waiting has been or, or, or what it would be, whether it's a line or whether it's whatever your circumstances are, but there's something about waiting that is just um, annoying to us, and especially as Americans, because in the Constitution it says we don't have to wait. You need to read your Constitution. <laughs> there is um, a study that was done. In 1960, McDonald's operated 200 restaurants. By 2012, they had 31,000 restaurants. 2012, there were more than a quarter million fast food restaurants in America as a whole. And on any given day, according to the study, one in four Americans will eat at least one meal at a fast food restaurant. For many people around the world, fast food symbolizes speed, efficiency, convenience, and the American way. Years ago, when we were in Russia, um, while communism was still in force, there had been a McDonald's established in Moscow. It was supposed to be the world's largest McDonald's. And uh, while we were there, one time we went to eat, and it was really a freaky thing because this was such an establishment of Western thought and, and uh, success that literally people in Moscow would dress up in their finest clothes to go and have their night out at McDonald's. No joke. We'd pass them and they'd all be dressed up. This was the big date night at McDonald's. So this has come to symbolize so much of who America is. The speed, the efficiency, the convenience. Sanford Defoe, who's a researcher at the University of Toronto, wanted to explore if our fast food culture was in fact changing our lives in ways just beyond our eating habits. So Devoe and another colleague conducted a series of experiments. 
in which researchers subliminally flashed corporate logos for McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Taco Bell, Burger King, Subway, and Wendy's. Subliminally flashed these up. A control group saw other images, but no fast food logos. When the two groups were asked to do an unrelated task, the fast food group tried to complete it much faster than the non-fast food group. They just felt driven to get it done quicker. In another experiment, flashes of fast food images made students less able to sit back and enjoy music. They couldn't sit back, they couldn't relax. They couldn't just enjoy the moment. A third experiment found that people exposed to fast food logos showed a greater reluctance for saving money. Based on these experiments, DeVoe has concluded that fast food helps us save time, but even just thinking about fast food restaurants makes us live with more speed and less patience. And right now you're saying, yes, can we speed this up and get out of here? I gotta get to McDonald's. Fast food culture, he says, doesn't just change the way we eat, but it can also fundamentally alter the way we experience our time. DeVoe claims the impatience promoted by our fast food culture and mindset stops us from smelling the roses. It speeds up every aspect of our life. It makes us unable to focus, to um, actually wait on something. Now, when you think of that and our culture today, and you think of that in light of this holiday and the history involved here, it's going to make this next couple of minutes all the more insane for you. 4,000 years ago, over 4,000 years ago, the first promise was given in regards to Christ and his advent, his presence here. God appears to this Middle Eastern nomad named Abraham. He tells him to leave his relatives and his family and his whole household. Everything is familiar to him. And he's to go to a place that God's going to promise him, a foreign land, a foreign place. And in the promise of this foreign land, this foreign place, he says in Genesis chapter 12, go from your country, your people, your father's household land, I'll show you and I'll make you into a great nation and bless you and I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing and I'll bless those who curse you and whoever curses you, I'll curse. And then this line here, he says, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Everyone on the entire planet is going to be impacted by you and the people that are going to flow from you and your family. 4,000 years ago, that promise was made to Abraham. And then nothing happened for about 600 years. After about 600 years, Abraham's descendants were, in fact, uh, multiple all over the place. But they're living in Egypt, and they're under Pharaoh, and they have become oppressed. And still they're waiting. A guy named Moses comes along. Moses sets them free with uh, God's direction, takes them out and, and heads them on that march that should have been a short march into the promised land. And that even takes 40 years. But in that time period of Moses, God speaks to them at that time in Deuteronomy 18, 18. He says, I'm going to raise up for them a prophet like you, speaking to Moses, from among their fellow Israelites, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he'll tell him everything that I command him. There's going to be a certain prophet that's going to come. He's going to be kind of like you, Moses, but he's going to be different, and he's going to be special, and there's going to be something really transformational that's going to take place through this individual. Then they end up in the promised land. 
and they wait for another 400 years. The prophet hasn't come. The blessing of Abraham hasn't happened yet. Another 400 years pass by. While they're there, there's a a guy named David that becomes king, and he's raised up as a king, and he wants to build a house for the Lord, but the Lord says, no, you're not going to be the one to to do the uh, um, temple or anything of that nature. He says, I'm going to raise up someone else that's going to do this. And then he talks to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I'm going to establish his kingdom. Oh, his kingdom. It goes on in verse 16. He says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever before me. Not just a temporary kingdom of a few years or a few decades, but for eternity it's going to be established. This flowed with the earlier statement of a prophet to the earlier statement that had been made to Abraham of of someone or, or something's going to be blessing through his loins and through his offspring, all people and all nations So this is being established, and and yet after this promise is being made, the reality is that that David's descendants make a real mess of things for the next couple of years or so. For the next 400 years, the kingdom gets split in two, they get sent up into exile, all sorts of bizarre things take place. In the process of that, they raise up various prophets who speak about this person who's supposed to come. Isaiah. 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord will give, himself a sign, give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're going to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In one of my favorite passages in this season, you'll find in the ninth chapter, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Hundreds of years more will pass. The prophets will go silent. There'll be a period that is referred to in theology as the intertestamental period. It's this period between the Old Testament and the New Testament where the prophets fall quiet and God doesn't speak for hundreds of years. And then after all that time, after 2,000 years of sitting in the DMV chair, waiting for your number to come up, waiting and waiting and waiting, after 2,000 years, this individual who was promised would come through Abraham's line, would be this prophet, would be the offspring of David, would be this person who's going to be a Messiah. Finally, after all of that time, Christ comes and is born. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 15, just prior to this, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem and the people have called out a certain phrase. And here again, when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts because they're shouting to him, Hosanna to the son of David, it says that they were indignant, these Pharisees. 
So the people are calling him the son of David. Why? That phrase meant messianic overtones. It had a statement of of all the things that we just read, of this summing up in this one person. So they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, this is the son of David. This is the one that's talked about whose throne will never end. This is the one who was talked about back in the time of Moses. This is the one that we've been waiting for way back from the father who birthed us all, Abraham. This is the son of David. This is the Messiah. This is the one Abraham, Moses. Moses, David, Isaiah, all the prophets were waiting for, for all the time, and now he's here with us. But it says that the Pharisees were indignant. The reason they were indignant is because they didn't like the idea. They didn't like the idea at all of Jesus being that person. They had a certain um, presence right then and there. They really weren't waiting for anybody. And if they were, they weren't waiting for someone like Jesus. So it says that they were indignant. They questioned his presence in his thing. But in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, we're sold, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law, at the exact proper time. Historians tell us that this was the perfect time, actually. It was the right time politically. The Roman Empire was at its height of power. It gave uh, the entire world uh, good roads. I know in Michigan this is hard to understand. But there are Roman roads that have lasted for thousands of years. I was in Florida recently, which is a state that I hate more than any other state in the Union. But one thing I will say about Florida, their roads are like butter. There's no cracking, there's no patching, there's nothing of any... You just roll right along there, and it's smooth. And I'm sitting here thinking, this is amazing. Florida is still not a state I really would want to live in, but for the roads alone, I would go there. They are so smooth. And then you come up into our roads, and you feel like you're pocking all over the place, broken tires, everything else. But you look at the Roman roads. These roads have lasted for thousands of years. It was a network upon which troops could move, people could move. And because of Rome's power and impact, it was a time of peace. More than any other time, people could, could, could communicate with one another could have commerce, could do this with ease, could quickly spread communications. And the message of Christ could move in a way it couldn't have prior to. It was the right time culturally. Greek language and culture that the Romans had appropriated had made for a cohesion to society. People were being educated and able to read like like never before. The New Testament was read, or written rather, in this type of a Greek, uh, the language the majority of people could understand, and it made more likely, again, for the message of Christ to take hold. It was something that unified people. But most of all, historians tell us that it was the right time spiritually. The average citizen of Rome was tired of the old religion. The mythological gods of Greece and Rome were losing their grips on people. Even the Jews were hungry for something. The, the Pharisees tried to continue to do the Old Testament stuff and the, the law and everything else, but, but even they knew and the common people knew that, that nothing was happening on this stuff. So here, right in the middle of all this mess and fuss, but in the proper and right timing, Christ is born and he comes. There's not a lot of time like it. Thousands of years of waiting And yet, right at the right time, Christ comes. But for 2,000 years, really for 4,000 years, those who were followers of God waited. 
In the midst of this, they had hope offered by prophets. They had hope offered by different circumstances and situations. There was a song of hope that was sung through that whole time, but they waited. Abraham didn't see the fulfillment of that. David didn't see the fulfillment of that. Isaiah and the other prophets didn't see the fulfillment of that, but they waited patiently, patiently. For those of us that have had to wait, not just at a DMV or something like that, but something far more serious, far more intense or deep, and where we've had to sit there powerless, just having to wait patiently. The only other power we'd have would be to walk out of the room or to leave the experience, but we wait. For those of us that have been in that moment, there is nothing sweeter than having waited for a lengthy period of time and been patient than to suddenly find that item arriving. The moment of fulfillment. There has been so much anticipation, so much desire, so much waiting and waiting and waiting until finally this happens. There's nothing like the joy of having that present, crossing from waiting to fulfillment. For 4,000 years, people waited. Then Christ shows. When he comes, he talks about Isaiah, and this captures me that right out of the, the moment of his temptation in Matthew, of those 40 days, that the first thing he does is he quotes the ninth chapter of Isaiah. In the ninth chapter of Isaiah, verse 2, when we've read the last couple of weeks, it says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Jesus' first phrase after uh, coming from the temptation and entering his ministry in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16 is, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of day, death, a light has dawned. And it says, from that point on, Jesus began to preach. He was the one who everyone was waiting for. Now here we are again. After Christ's coming, we're waiting one more time because we're told that Christ is going to return. We're told that there's going to be a kingdom of heaven that's already expanding across this planet, but that at one point in time, somewhere, there's going to be a resolution to everything. Now, I'm going to say something in this moment that I've said privately in a couple of conversations, and it's about time I said it publicly, probably. I was raised in a system, if you will, that believed strongly, intensely on the imminent return of Jesus Christ. You could call it end time-ish. We believe so strongly that the end time was in present right now, that Christ is going to come back any moment, that I'm probably not going to finish high school, probably not going to finish college, no way I'm going to get married. Any second now, you live your life that way, and, and any moment... For those of you that are wondering, I did finish high school, <laughs> finished college, finished my graduate studies, I got married, I had kids, and I'm now, you know, at this point in my life, and I look at the organization that we were a part of for so long, which I still respect and is doing great works, and, and, and that whole grouping, and, and when it hit its 100th year anniversary, I said, maybe Christ isn't coming back quite as quickly as we thought. Maybe not. I'm not saying he's not coming back. I believe he is. 
But maybe there's things to be done before that. Maybe we're still in a period of waiting that could stretch out to some period of time. So there was that belief. And then the other item was, was I was raised also very revivalistic, which had a lot of emotional aspects to coming to an understanding of who God was. And I saw excesses in that, and that kind of concerned me a little bit too. So that was my background. It was end times and, and revivalistic. But I look at the world right now, and I won't go into the detail, but there are things happening now in this world, in this country, in this world as a whole that has never happened in all of human history, ever. There are certain levels of rebellion, certain levels of rejection of God that has never happened in the history of mankind. It just hasn't. And I look at some of the things that we are facing as a nation, as a people, and the darkness that's there, and for the first time, I think... I'm becoming end timeish again. I'm beginning to think that maybe we're reaching a point of such breakdown and such, such heartache, such disaster and damage that, that, that this world is not long for its time. And as a result, I've kind of circled all the way around because the only way I can be optimistic in this period now is to believe that somewhere God's going to initiate a revival that will transform this nation and this people. So I hope you follow the humor of this. I have. Began end timeish, revivalistic, moved away from all that, but now looking at a world where I think we're in the end times, I think the only answer is a revival. I find that funny. <laughs> you obviously don't share my humor. That's fine. One day you guys will acquire a good sense of humor and we'll talk. We wait still patiently for the coming of Christ. Second Peter Church 3, 8 says, um, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. His timing is not the same as ours. One day he is going to return. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be still a hundred years from now. But there's a time that he's going to be coming back. And Psalm twenty-seven fourteen says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Psalm 31 says, Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Our hope is in Christ. Psalm 130, verse 5 says, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. Romans 8.25 says, But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And then finally, James Chapter 5, verses 7 and 8 says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient, stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Any of you ever uh, plant anything? Like, like, I'm not talking flowers. I'm talking like um, carrots or, or uh, turnips or something. How many of you ever planted anything? How many of you were successful? Okay, I'm not amongst those. Um, I can't seem to get things to grow too much, but I do remember one time when I was a kid and I planted some carrots. And I remember having to wait for the first shoots to come up. And you're staring at the ground, it's like there's nothing going on. You can't see anything happening. And you're just waiting and you go back day after day after day after day after day after day after day until finally you see that first little shoot start to come up. 
And I remember I actually dug one of them up, which totally aborted the process. But I had to see, is it really, what's, what's it look like, you know? And I pulled out the one. Now, I left the others there. But I had to see what's actually happening. Oh, there's this little, you know, small little carrot. I left the rest alone. And then over time, there were these um, significant harvests, if you will, that I had in my backyard there, that, my little backyard. This is the same way that the scripture is talking about how we look at the things of God, to be patient, that there's something that he's doing still, that even if we don't see it, even if we don't perceive it, even if we don't grasp it fully, that there's something in patience that God fulfills and brings in the proper timing. I think waiting... I hate waiting. I don't like it. I'm not sure there's any of us that really do. Some of you have waited patiently over a very, very lengthy period of time and you still haven't seen the light shine in the circumstances that you're in. For you, these psalms, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart. Be strong and take heart for you who hope in the Lord. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. For you, these scriptures are ones that that you should take and, and chew on for a while. God doesn't move in the same ways and times that we wish or that we think. It was 4,000 years before the son of David actually came, the one whose throne was going to be eternal, the one who was going to bring redemption and salvation. And even if you don't see it now or sense it now, God still is moving and still working in the time and place that you have now. In the midst of waiting, there is hope. And that hope is ultimately met. Probably about 20, 30 years ago, probably 1989, I think it was, a guy named Samuel Beckett, he was an Irish playwright, died. Beckett was one of the great playwrights of the 20th century. But he saw life as hopeless and utterly futile. Some of you may have seen uh, one of his more important plays. Uh, anybody ever saw or read or was required in school uh, a play called Waiting for Godot? Oh, this is really sad. I'm going to get a copy for each of you. It is one of the most bizarre plays you're ever going to find. The play Waiting for Godot has these two hobos waiting for Godot, a third hobo or bum. And they go back and forth. And the whole thing is just the waiting. And Godot never, I don't don't want to mess this for you guys, because I know you plan on going out right after this and reading it. But, but, but I'll spoil it for you. Godot never shows. Ever. 
And so these two guys go back and forth and they sit and they have petty little arguments. I think at least once, maybe twice, they contemplate suicide as they're waiting for Godot to show up, but he never, ever, ever shows. Now, here's one of the interesting things about this, and this was part of the absurdism that, um, that uh, Beckett had of futility and everything else. In North America, we would refer to, and I was always taught, waiting for Godot. But in Europe, where it was originally written, it's pronounced waiting for God. Oh. And there are those that believe that Beckett was actually trying to make a statement in regards to his view of God. That basically, God is the bum who never shows up. There were those who thought the same thing over thousands of years' time that God is just never going to show up. The decades stretched, the centuries expanded beyond that, and then the millennia. But I want you to understand God is the God who does show up. Not always in the way we think or we want or we desire and rarely in our timing. But he does show up. In the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago and we wait for that return. But he shows up even now still. In the different ways that different people minister still today. Each one of you in this place who is a follower of Christ, when you act on his behalf, God shows up in that moment and you are his extension. So whatever waiting period you're in, whatever moment of consideration you're in, don't ever fall for Beckett's concept and think that you're just one bum that God doesn't care about, hanging out with another bum, waiting for God to show up. God does and he will. And he knows who you are and where you are. I'll leave with you one final scripture. As Paul's talking to his protege, Timothy, who's going to follow him, even as, as Paul's life is almost forfeit now. He says, keep this commandment without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. King of kings, Lord of lords, Messiah. God in the flesh, in the right time. in exactly and precisely the right time. You're going to stand a lot of lines this uh, holiday season. You're going to stand in line to get food. You're going to stand in line to buy a present. You're going to stand in line to get gas. You're going to stand in line this, line that. You're going to, you're going to be waiting on a lot of different things. You're going to get impatient might even get angry and edgy and irritable. Waiting does that 
sometimes. I don't expect it to be a real resolution for you to imagine at least that, okay, uh, in the midst of your irritation and anger, well, uh, everyone waited 4,000 years in Israel. I'm not sure that's going to be the sol solving for you. But I would ask this, that, that the next time you wait in this season, that maybe as you're waiting, just for a moment, your mind processes the idea of, of what that waiting period meant and, and what it meant to have Christ. And just let your mind focus for a moment of time. Maybe it'll change how you wait going forward as that kind of injects a different perspective into that moment. Father, as we go forward into this season, I pray, Lord, that as we wait, that we would find a level of patience and quietness of spirit and using those moments even for a point of meditation or consideration. I pray, Lord, for those who have been waiting a very, very long time for some sense of spiritual hope and renewal, that they would find that in this season and that also, Lord, when that comes, that it would be all the greater for the anticipation. In these closing weeks of this year, Lord, let us make every moment count, including the moments that we have just waiting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.